0: We left off in verse 27 of Luke chapter 9 last week. So we are in Luke chapter 9, verse 27. Verse 27 says, I tell you the truth, some, standing, some who are standing here today will not taste death before they can see the kingdom of God. Some who are standing here today will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now Jesus had told His disciples A little bit before that, in verse 21, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. And then starting in verse 23, he says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self, their own soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in the glory in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. And so Jesus is speaks to his, he speaks to his disciples of a soon death and resurrection and then he says to them that if they want to come after him they must take up their cross and follow Jesus. So for the disciples to truly be disciples of Jesus, they must have four things going on that verse verse 23 says. This is what we went over last week. So briefly, have a desire, deny themselves, take up their cross, and actually follow Jesus. Those four things have to be going on. Do you have a desire? Do you even want to follow the Lord? He says, if you want to follow me, that's great. Step one. Number two, you've got to deny yourself because where I'm taking you, you're not going to want to go. Three pick up your cross. It's going to involve death to self. How often? Daily. And four, you follow me. And that's what a disciple is. That's the definition of a disciple, one who follows Jesus Christ, who obeys Jesus Christ. So now for us, we can look at verse, in that verse uh, 23 there, in 2017, Walla Walla, USA, and go, I want to follow Jesus. And the idea of denying ourselves and picking up our cross and following Jesus can be taken somewhat figuratively. Now, I think it's vastly different than what Jesus is actually saying to the disciples. If we read it for just what it says, Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be rejected, and if you want to follow me, expect the same. How do you like that reading? That's what he's talking about. He keeps telling him over and over, two times, he's going to say it again. I'm about to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die. Do you want to be my disciple? You're going to follow me. At that point, I'm like, well, I didn't sign up for this part of it. You know, how many of us kind of go, yeah, you know, I love all the... The attention, I love the power, I love the authority, I love the glory, I love, I love going to church, I love the bells and the whistles and the people and yay and all the good times. I love potlucks. Okay, but what's this dying stuff you're talking about? What's this death? You don't mean death, death, do you? Now my question is to us, do we desire to follow Jesus to that degree if necessary? to a literal cross. Yes, discipleship is a daily thing, and I don't want us to think that Jesus isn't talking about daily, because he says daily. Some people think, you know, I am willing to die for my faith, but we're not willing to live for it today. We're not actually willing to live it out daily, so that when that moment comes, if it should come, that we actually do say, yes, So Jesus is saying that you must follow me daily. Yes, discipleship is a daily thing, but ultimately it is denial of self to the point where you're going to follow Jesus however, whenever, wherever he wants you to go, even to a literal cross. And the world isn't getting any prettier, if you've noticed. And when light shines in darkness, darkness does not like light. It wants to snuff you out. It wants to shut you up because darkness likes darkness. And how many of us have lived like that? And when the light was exposed to us, we started to persecute the light instead of come into the light. Boy, that conviction of the Holy Spirit can be so powerful in a person's life. It is powerful. And every disciple was martyred except for Judas who betrayed Christ and John who lived to be the old age and we really don't know what happened to him even though he was supposedly boiled alive in oil and survived but just a few. Uh, every every um, Matthew was killed by a battle axe. Andrew was crucified. Mark was dragged to death behind horses. Thomas died by a spear. And Peter was crucified upside down because he said that he wasn't worthy to die the death that his Lord died. I recommend a book. You know, I recommend books here. The one's about death. Uh, Fox's Book of, of Martyrs is, is, a, is a classic. It goes through how all the martyrs from Stephen all the way uh, through uh, several centuries of church history and how they died and the, way, the manner in which it was recorded. It's a very powerful book, and I would encourage you to read it to see how these people actually put into place being a disciple of Jesus Christ to the, to the ultimate point where they would lay down their lives. It's a serious business we're talking about. And so Jesus was saying that following in his footsteps leads to the cross— the cross of self-denial daily, yes, in our lives, but also that could be a literal cross in your life where one day you stand up as a missionary in a foreign land and you say, I will stand for Jesus. And then you die in that place, in that ground. And I hope God calls you to a place that, will, that your faith will be totally to the point where you realize that I truly am following Christ whether it's walking across the street in total self-denial, willing to um, take, the, take the brunt of whatever comes at you as you go out and share the love of Jesus and the truth of the gospel and love, or whether it's on the, in the other side of the world in a hostile, hostile uh, territory, that you would know that you are following Christ and that you are obeying Him wherever He leads you. And that's important. And so Jesus is saying that following in footsteps can lead to the cross. Yes, that self-denial of every day, we don't want to deny that. That is the building block. But quite possibly that physical cross of persecution and death is you're rejected by the world that rejected Jesus first. The Bible says that if they rejected me, they rejected you. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. You know, no, no servant is greater than his master. I'm paraphrasing there. So Jesus is saying to the disciples, if you follow me, you're most likely going to die, which makes sense if you literally read verse 27, where we are today. Hallelujah. Um, Truly, I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Matthew sixteen twenty-eight. the parallel version of this um, account says, Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So the kingdom of God and the Son of Man, they are all uh, one idea, God in his glorified state. Now, what does it mean? What is Jesus is saying? Is this figurative or what? And What I love about the Bible is that it quite often explains itself. If you just want to know what that means, you just keep reading. About verse 28, about eight days later, after Jesus said this, he took Peter, Jean, uh, John, and James with him, and he went up to a mountain to pray. Now, if you just notice, we just got exclusive. Who did he take with him? Peter, James, and John. He didn't bring all the boys up on the hill. He took three of them and brought brought them up to the mountain and invited them to pray. I think that is an important note to make. I love Robert Coleman's book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, where he points out that Jesus had the masses around him. And then he had the, uh, the, the disciples in general. Then he had like the 120, then the 70, and then he had the 12. And then he had the three, which we are seeing here. And then he had the one, which I would say would be John. You know, some would say Peter, but John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He would go on and to write the book of Revelation at a very old age as he was exiled on the island of Patmos. But that's not to say that Jesus did not love the others. He did not love the others. That's not that's not true. He loved all of them, but he was going to the cross. He was about to leave, and his ministry needed to be duplicated. His mission needed to be put into the hearts and lives of other people. He was focused on the next generation of leaders, and this that can't happen in a group setting like this. I can't talk to you for 45 minutes, and you go, you know, yeah, I've got it, and let's go, and... and There has to be a one-on-one or grabbing a few people that you are discipling and hanging around. It happens in a small group. It happens in intimate relationships, one-on-one. Not to say God doesn't use this. It is very important that we are all under the teaching of the Word of God. But I think it's also important that we take time uh, to get into each other's lives and to expound the Scriptures back and forth to one another and so that we are... Uh, edified and encouraged and built up and then sent and held accountable and were duplicated. So I have a question, uh, who is who's the Paul in your life? Who is pouring into you? And then who is your Timothy? Who are you pouring into? I think those are two very important things, and that's very biblical. And I realize that certain phases of life, you're just busy. I understand busy. But we're busy about the things that are most important is Christ central in your life? If Christ is central in your life, then I would encourage you to pray about this. Now, you know, for some, it might be a mom's like, hey, you know, I'm listening to messages on the radar. I'm hanging out with this person, and then they're pouring into their children all day long. (laughs) You know, I understand that. That that. That's biblical. That's good. That's what God calls you to do. But some of us need to be encouraged to, hey, let's step out of my comfort zone and, and, and maybe I could do a little less of this and really just invest in the spiritual uh, things that the Lord has called us to because how many of us are just kind of stuck in our faith? We've been stuck. Well, that tells me that you're a dead sea right now and you need not water just flowing in, but you need water flowing out. It's a picture there. It's a geographical picture. You ever been to the Dead Sea? I have. I've floated on it. There's a lot of salt in there and nothing lives in it. It's cool to hang around and you just float in there. Your body goes up, believe it or not. But there's no outlet, and so there's no life in that, in that. There's only an inlet. But you go upstream a little ways, and there's the Sea of Galilee, which has an inlet and an outlet, and it's teeming with life. You want to be a Sea of Galilee, not a, a dead sea, amen? And so you have the masses around you. You have the 120. You have the 70. But do you have your 12, so to speak? Do you have your three? Do you have your one? Pray about that concerning these things of the kingdom. And Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up to a mountain to pray. Notice he took him up to a mountain to pray. In verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of the Lord's face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Eight days earlier, Jesus had said to his disciples that some would not taste death before they saw the kingdom of God. And here the kingdom of God has appeared to their very eyes, the radiant king in all of his glory. Jesus is the kingdom Jesus Christ in his glorified state. It says that the appearance of his face changed. His clothes became brighter than a flash of lightning. What's the in- mental image you have of Jesus? Is it European Jesus? Flanograph Jesus? Oil painting Jesus? I don't know. Where are we going? <laughs> but what's your, when, you, when, you, when you picture Jesus, what, what's the image of Christ that you picture? I mean, think about that. We do when we think of Jesus, we obviously associate an image with it. What do you, what do you kind of have? It's interesting. Revelation chapter one gives us a further uh, description of Christ in His glorified state. So Peter and, and James and John, they're they're relaying that His face changed and His clothes were like lightning. In Revelation one. 12 through 18 says, I turned, and this is John, the apostle, remember I told you he lived on to be very old, he's writing this, he says, I turned around to see the voice of the one who was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and amongst the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest, and the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire, and his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth a sharp sword, double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. That's your Jesus, by the way. That's your Jesus. Wow. Radiant. Glory. And, and notice he's grabbing things that, that are in the natural world that try to explain something that's in the spiritual world. He's grabbing things that might help us understand. His clothes were like lightning, they said there in, in verse uh, 29. It wasn't lightning, it was like lightning. It was just bright, it was brilliant. And then John is even saying his face was like. The sun in all of its glory. Like, what does that mean even? If you grab and you grab, what's the brightest thing we know? The sun. And he grabs that and says, it's like that. But it fails in comparison. I was talking with Rami and saying, we were talking about heaven and uh, you know, we went down to Multnomah Falls. Thank you for helping me remember that. And, and you ever taken, you ever seen the, the waterfall there? It's just, it's, it's magnificent. It's glorious. It's coming down. And you're just like, wow. And how many of you have taken a picture of it? And how many of you brought it home and trying to tell other people what that's like? And you're like, look, isn't it awesome? Can't you see it? It's like water, <laughs> huge water. It's coming down at you, but it's bigger than this. I mean, isn't that what it's like? That's what's going on here. They're like, his face is like the sun, like 10,000 blazing suns or whatever it is. You just can't, it doesn't work. So there's a, there's a thing about God and his glory. I think uh, John, John uh, MacArthur says that God's glory is like wet, wet as to water. Like, that's who he is. He is glorious. And his radiance is something we just, we can't comprehend. That if we did truly see his glory, as we're going to see, they, there was a, God put a cloaking shield so basically they wouldn't die. We would die. We can't handle it in our flesh. And even Jesus' transfiguration was something they were somehow shielded from dying from. But there he is in his radiant glory, Jesus Christ. And he says that the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became brighter than a flash of lightning. The brightest thing that John can think of he uses to describe Christ's face. You know, I think we often lack worship because we truly don't understand the glory of God. We don't seek it. We don't want to know it. We don't pray and we don't want, when you know the glory of God, when you start to see how glorious and how big and mighty He is and His character and His, um, and just His grace and His mercy in light of that, in light of His total power, that causes a reaction in humanity. It should cause a reaction in humanity, in Christians especially. We should respond in worship. Yes, songs. Yes, amen, but a life that says, whoa, that's my God. That's who I serve. That's who I'm going to follow after. That's who I'm going to answer to one day. I want to live in light of that. One of the most powerful, um, well, I want to go back for a second, Yeah, I do. And okay, so Christ shows them his glorified state in all of his radiance and glory. But Jesus wasn't, a, well, actually, gosh, I got messed up here, sorry. Never happened. Got caught up by his glory. Yeah. John responds at the end of Revelation. Sorry, that's where I want to go. Verse 17, where I was in Revelation, where he's describing what Jesus' face looked like. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his dead though, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's what happens when we see God. That's what happens when we see angels in their glorified state. They're just in their unfiltered radiance. And I love this. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am the first. I am the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. I've got it. And he puts his hand on our shoulder. It says, rise. And that's our Jesus. All that power, all that glory, all that. And yet he says, don't be afraid to you. Stand up. I love that. And this is most likely how we're going to see Jesus when we see him face to face. You know, our flannelgraph Jesus, our European Jesus doesn't just kind of fall short, doesn't it? We've kind of got that picture of the waterfall. Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus, the sun is the radiance of, the, of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The sun is the... Radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. God is spirit. God in the flesh is Jesus. If you want to know what God looks like, you look to Jesus Christ. That's how we can see God. He's the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. To see Christ is to see God. So Christ shows them his glorified state and But Jesus wasn't alone. Verse 30 says, two men, uh, uh, Moses and Elijah, appeared in the glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. You can see that Luke is relaying these eyewitness accounts to us in his gospel, and no doubt as Peter or John, James died early, were relaying what Christ looked like and what happened. The words, they just fall short. They just fall short. Words like lightning and glorious splendors we just talked about. And so Moses and Elijah, they appeared with Jesus, and he had this, they had this glorious splendor. And Elijah was one of the mighty prophets. We know that Moses wrote the law, the Old Testament. Basically, the first five books Moses penned, and then Elijah was the mightiest, well, one of the mightiest of prophets. John the Baptist would be the mightiest. But it's an interesting picture here because the law and the prophets are pointing to Christ. I love that. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he went to the scriptures, actually on the road to Emmaus. Uh, There was these disciples uh, walking, and He came to them, and He started to expound the Scriptures, and that would be the Old Testament, uh, and how they all pointed to Jesus. I love uh, how He talks to the Pharisees and says, "You, You search the Scriptures daily, thinking in them you have life, but they are that which points to Me. All the Scriptures, they point to Jesus. If you have any difficulty understanding the Old Testament, uh, as, as my brother Byron Milling says, just put Jesus in the middle of what you're reading and see what the Holy Spirit, uh, if He doesn't give you the perfect uh, the perspective you need. Now, regarding Moses and Elijah, it says in verse 31 that they spoke about His departure. Notice, uh, uh, well, sorry, they, they spoke about His departure, which is about to bring fulfillment in Jerusalem. I find it fascinating that, uh, Jesus is conversing with Moses and Elijah, who had long since passed from the earth. Moses died on the other side of the Jordan; he wasn't allowed to go in. And Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire. That's how the, the Old Testament uh, talks about that. And if you read Jude, the only chapter one of Jude, there only is one chapter. It talks about how uh, angels wrestled, with, uh, uh, angel wrestled with Satan for the bones of Moses, and that's just an interesting trippy thing. I don't know what that is, but. It, it happened, and Jesus was about to fulfill the prophecies given by Moses and Elijah, and um, uh, concerning the Messiah, and it, that He would be rejected, die, and, and raised again on the third day. So they're all talking about this. And one of the most powerful pictures that is written by Moses in Genesis chapter twenty-two is where Abraham was going to a mountain, which was three days away. Very interesting, Old Testament. This is written a couple thousand years before Christ. Uh, this happened a couple thousand years before Christ, where Abraham was going to a mountain which was three days away, and to sacrifice his one and only son to God. And, and like you and me, we go, what in the world? Why would you ever consider that? Because of his faith. He trusted in God. And as Abraham's son Isaac carried the wood upon his back up the hill, they came to the place where the sacrifice was to be made on Mount Moriah. This is Genesis 22. You can read it. That was near Jerusalem just outside Jerusalem, and Isaac uh, wondered where the sacrifice was, and Abraham said that God himself would provide the lamb. Knowing full well Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, he knew that God would provide himself the lamb. Isaac is wondering what's going on. So you have a picture of a father leading his son up a hill to be sacrificed his son. He has the wood on his back. You guys starting to picture something? Three-day journey. And Abraham tied his son down, raised the knife, and was about to plunge it into his only son's chest when the angel of the Lord stopped him. And then there was a sound of a ram caught in a thicket. And you see, that's that picture of what actually would happen 2,000 years later in that same exact spot where God took his only son and put him to death for you and me. That he would pay our penalty and we would go free. See, the Old Testament, it points to Christ. And that's just one example. It's one powerful example, but it's full of it. All the way through, you put Jesus in the middle and the Old Testament comes alive. It's all concerning him. Hebrews tells us that the reason that Abraham was going, going to go through the sacrifice, you're going, why would he do that? Because Abraham believed that God would have to raise Isaac from the dead to make good on his promise that all the nations through him must be blessed. In other words, he believed in the promise. He believed in the resurrection. He looked at it and he says, if I go ahead and kill my son, my only son, God would have to raise him from the dead because God said that through him all the nations would be blessed. That is faith. And that's why it's in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. There's sometimes God asks you to do stuff that you do not understand, but you, you rely upon God's Word no matter what the circumstances are, because you know God is true to His Word. That's what faith is, that trusting in what God says, no matter how you feel. Tell me Abraham did not have emotions going on. Oh my gosh, he was 90, that was his He didn't count for Isaac. Isaac was of the flesh. This was the son of promise. You know, it's interesting uh, as well, Revelation chapter 11, if you flip there. But just to let you know, the Old, Old Testament is anticipating the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The law and the prophets, they anticipate Christ. This is how we know the Word of God is true is because it says it before it happens. What other book do you have that says it before it happens and it says it so exactly that there's just no way out of it? That, that scholars and people and all these people don't know, there's no way that could have been written after the fact. That's too accurate. And yet that's one of God's signatures to let you know that He's outside of time. He sees the end from the beginning and He writes it in advance so that we would know that He is who He is and you can trust in His Word, one of the evidences. Revelation chapter 11, very interesting sidebar. I just want to throw this out at you. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. Don't worry about this. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days in, uh, clothed in sackcloth. And they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they shall be before the Lord of the earth. They stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone, that's interesting, they stand before the Lord of the earth. Two witnesses standing before the Lord of the earth. What's happening here on the Mount of Transfiguration? Got two people standing before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. That is a cool superpower. <laughs> I <I'd>, just <laughs> like, I would like to upgrade. Um, what. Elijah called down fire from heaven. That was one of his signature things that happened through him. And this is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain uh, during the time they are prophesying. Who's Elijah? Elijah again? Did that. And they have the power to turn the waters into blood. Whoa. And to strike the earth with every kind of plague as they want. Who's that? So many people believe, myself included, I would lean towards that the two witnesses are probably most likely Moses and Elijah. Or whatever I just said, Mojaya or something. (laughs) We'll give them a name. That's just a side thing. But Peter and his companions, verse 32, were very sleepy. But when they came fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men standing with him. Notice they call them the two men standing with him. Interesting that the Bible says that there are two men standing at the grave of Jesus, telling them, wondering why. One calls them angels, one calls them men. Don't know. Have fun with that. But there are two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving, Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. I love the Bible. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered him, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. And the disciples kept this to themselves. It did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. The glory of God causes us to worship. The glory of God causes us to worship. When Peter saw the glory of God, he said, this is good. I've got to worship. I've got to worship. We see the glory of God. We see it. In creation, and in, in the revelation of creation, you see God's glory in creation. When we look at the beauty and the vastness of the heavens, the sun, moon, and the stars, when I see, anybody, was, did anybody kind of see the, uh, what are the things, meteorites last night? Flying across the sky? Beautiful, I saw like one. It was like, I guess they were happening all the time. I'm like, oh, ADD, gotta go. <laughs> Didn't work out, you know? But, when we look at the, the, in, a, in the powerful telescopes we have, and we look out into the universe and we see how vast our universe is, that, that our little galaxy is just one of many in the universe, you know? The Milky Way is just one of countless millions, and we just, like, look at the vastness of it all. It just causes you to go, wow. When you look at a newborn child, you're just in, in, in awe of what just happened. I I mean, look at the flowers of the field and and the different seasons and the snow falling. Even the wheat, how it waves. I mean, you're just blown away. And it causes something within us to try to express something. That's God's purpose for that. But like Peter, in many times in my life and, and many people around the world and many religions, we get it wrong. We worship the creation sometimes rather than the creator. Romans 1 has a warning against that. You worship the creation rather than the creator. God gives you over to a reprobate mind because it's out of order. And then you start to do things that are unnatural, which is what's happening in our country these days. As you don't understand things in their place, in their order, you've got things out of order. Or we worship the people who reflect the glory of God. People used mindedly of God. We, we, we lift people up and start to go, oh, look at that. Gosh, just... They're the epitome of God in a person. I, I, w- I want to be like them. Oh, really? You just got to go, dirty, rotten sinner. I know they are. They just cover it well because that's what Scripture says. You know... Worship is not how we want to worship God. It's how he says we are to worship him. Is that okay? If God makes the rules about how he'd like to be worshipped, it's interesting. My thoughts have changed to this over the years. You know, I've gone, th- oh, he just looks at the heart. Yeah, he does. He does look at the heart. And that is mostly, you know, a, you know some, you know, do you think I delight, delight in the sacrifices of bulls and goats? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, a bruised heart. That I will not not deny. And so God, when He wants to be worshipped, He wants to be worshipped with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That's how God receives worship from us. The sacrifices of bulls and goats, that's just like, meh. What I really want is your heart. But that doesn't mean that we don't have reverence for God in our worship, and we don't Look at the Scriptures and seek how He desires to be worshipped, because that's what worship is. It's, it's Him. It's not me. It's how He wants. And so if He says to sing, guess what we're going to do? We're going to sing to Him, and that's why we sing. He didn't say you couldn't have guitars or amps or anything like that. And so really, there's tons of styles of, let's just say, music, if we're talking about that, kind of, that, that expression of worship. There's tons, and some of you prefer one to other. That's Okay. But I think, you know, when, you're, when you are truly in love with, with the Lord, and, and even just take it when you're in love with someone, you could be singing to elevator music. Isn't that weird? You're like, yeah, I know this song. Music, let's go. Just, you know, but it, it's a reflection of the heart. It truly is. And, and really, if, if you go to Romans 12, and this is the epitome of worship here. Again, I'm going off script. But on the script. Because it's right here. Romans twelve, one and two, I can read it for you. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper what? Worship. Some people uh, translate service. That's interesting. Worship and service are are interchangeable words. So how do you worship God? Well, your body is a living sacrifice. I'm yours, Lord. What do you want to do with it? Inside and out. And by the way, Lord, send me and use me. That's worship. It's very powerful. We're going to have to teach on worship here coming up. I think we need it. I need it. The glory of God causes us to worship. And and God, the Father, is so good. He sets things straight. As Peter starts to mess it up, like I do... The Lord steps in and says, well, the Shekinah glory first, the cloud that shrouds the very presence of the Father, basically so that Peter and James and John don't die. God puts up the cloaking shields just mercifully. God's unrestrained glory would have just vaporized him. But God speaks from the clouds, this is my son, I have chosen, listen to him. And Peter had the law and the prophets on equal footing with God the son. Peter had the law and the prophets on equal footing with God. He looked at Elijah as Moses as an equal to uh, Elijah, and I do not see the scripture that way. Hebrews 1, 2 says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors, to the prophets, and many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Jesus is superior to Elijah. Elijah was pointing to Christ the law points to Christ. Well, John one, 1 fourteen through 18 says the, the word came uh, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. This is John his version of relaying what's going on right here. And John the Baptist testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said he who comes after me surpasses me because he was before me. In other words, Jesus was eternal. Two different Johns. John writing this and then him referring to John the Baptist who just said that. Verse 16, don't worry about it. Uh, Out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given for the law was given through Moses Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. So the law and the prophets, they foreshadowed Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of what the law and prophets declare. Jesus came and said, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. They are are in harmony, but Jesus is superior. Now, next day, let's finish this up. Next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And the Spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Demonic possession is a real thing. It is a real thing. And Unless you really have seen it, you don't know. I think it's more prevalently like active in third world countries and other places where. And let me explain. It. Demons like their boss Satan. They work. Their main. They have two main goals. Basically, they hinder. Two main, Well, they, they want to basically. They want to stop people from believing in God, no matter what. That's, that's what they desire to do or, uh, in, in the true God. And demons like their boss, Satan, they have two main goals to hinder, and that is uh, uh, deception spiritually and to hinder physically. Those two types of things. through It's through deception spiritually and physical means they want to hinder people. So those two things, they kind of work. And they either work covertly, which is mostly what they do, or they work overtly, flat out. And when Jesus is present, demonic activity kicks up. It just does. But most of the time, the enemy is working covertly. We have covert ops and things going around the world right now because we don't want to have full out frontal war. We want to undermine things the United States. Does that make sense? That's how people work. They put spies in places. They put them in certain situations that cause uproaring. They they change policy. They affect things, whatever it might be. It's a covert situation. It's not launching a missile in somewhere. Well, the enemy is similar. How do you think he'd attack you? Full-out frontal assault? Or is he going to subtly get into your life in other ways to undermine and destroy you? So there's that covert and that Uh, overt way of that he works and the reason why the disciples could not cast this demon out was because they lacked faith which is interesting jesus had given the disciples authority over demons in luke 9 1 and matthew's account tells us they had come back rejoicing that the demons fled but now what in the world is going on why why don't they have power over this situation they had power, they had victory before, but now they don't. Everybody else, anybody ever run into that situation before? You've prayed for something and God's given delivery, but one time you just run into it, it's not, it doesn't happen. And then you just go, whatever, and you give up. And then Jesus lets them in on what is going on. Verse 41, you unbelieving and perverse generation. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. The reason why the disciples could not cast out this demon was because they lacked faith. They had the authority, but they did not believe. They had the authority, but they did not believe. And I know this gets into, you know, name it, claim it type of stuff. You know I'm not like that. Matthew 17, well... You know, just, just thinking, perhaps this demon was so demonstrative, that's probably where you get the word from, was so overtly powerful that they just, they were afraid of what was going on. Have you ever had a circumstance in your life where you're just like, whoa, I cannot handle that, that is crazy, get me out of here. I think that's probably what happened. They tried, they were trying to, they were saying the words, but they didn't have, they weren't trusting in the authority and the power of Jesus that Jesus had given them. I don't know how it all works. But Matthew 17, 19 through 20 gives us a little bit more. It says, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? <laughs> That's kind of what I would do. do. <laughs> hey, Jesus, can I talk to you on the side here? I don't want to make this public. Uh, why did I fail so miserably? I love that. It came to him privately. Me too. Verse 20, he replied, because you have so little faith. Because you have so little faith. And truly, I tell you, you have. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, "Move from here to there," and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. It's interesting what the context of that verse is. So in the, in in the context, it was it was removing? It was exorcism. Hmm. But the fact is the same for us. We have been given so many gifts. We've been given so many gifts. We've been given so many riches in Christ. You have. They're yours. Your sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, they are yours. But because of fear, we don't use them. But because of what we're afraid of or what we're, you know, what we're worried of, we don't activate them. We don't use them. We were not willing to step through the door. Have you felt like that? And the enemy rumbles and he threatens and he intimidates and he just he cripples us into a corner. And the reality is that is that in the eyes of Christ, he's the mouse and we are the lion. Because Christ is in us. And so... When you read the word of God, believe it. Believe what he says. And faith that God have faith in the word of God, you know. Faith that God is able to work in and through someone like you and me. That he's willing to do that. How many of you feel ill-equipped? Unable, fearful. It's too big. Can't get to it. Don't want to. Oh my gosh, it's scary. Oh, you have little faith. I feel it. Trust in your mighty God, the one with the radiant glory, the one who's got the keys of death and hell in his hand. Amen? He says, go. It's not a, will you please go? His authority is, Go into all the world and make disciples. Go love them. Yes, you're going to make mistakes. That's what the next chapter is about, is disciples falling flat on their face, starting with Peter. Hey, let's worship three gods. No, that's not what's going on. Then they're going to be asleep when they're supposed to be awake. Anybody ever done that? (laughs) Jesus. Well, they were asleep, weren't they? They were very sleepy and then they awoke. I probably skipped the verse, didn't I? I don't even know where I am right now. But I tell you what the Lord has called you to go take Walla Walla by storm and turn it upside down. You prioritize your lives in your money and your time and your talent, all those things, your time around the king, around him, and say, Lord, I am your disciple. I want to follow you. Take me wherever you want me to go, and I'm just going to go. And I'm going to trust when I run into the big bad wolf that you are going to be bigger and badder, because you are. And I trust that you're going to give me the words to say when I need to say them. And I trust when I get hit, you're going to come and you're going to tend to my wounds. You're going to pick me up, and you're going to love me and care for me. I trust that, I just trust your word. I trust that you've put me here for a reason that's beyond myself and just accumulating stuff that's gonna burn, amen? But it's actually to grab people out of the pits and of, of hell just like we were and to, and to drag them, if need so, to the king, you are the missionaries of Walla Walla. You are the evangelist. You are the light. You are the the reason why Jesus died and rose again, so that He could multiply and be in you and through you, and that you would go multiply as you go grab people and bring them to Jesus. And let me tell you, you're going to start to go, I don't know how to do something. Well, that's how the body works, then there's teachers and there's equippers and there's servants and then there's evangelists and then there's people who like to help and there's people who like to give and then there's administrators. God just goes, yeah, we're going to work as a body and we're going to go do this. So I challenge you this morning to, to be a disciple and you're going to run into situations where you fail. We're going to go through these failures and, and Jesus is so faithful. Yes, to speak the truth, your, your situation is you don't believe me and you're perverse, you're bent, you're wrong. But I'm going to take you because you're mine, and I'm going to straighten you out, and I'm going to love you fiercely, and we're going to keep on going. Amen? I love that. Verse 20, 42, real quickly. And even while the boy was coming, the demon threw himself on the ground, but Jesus rebuked the impure spirit. He healed the boy and gave him back to his father, and they all amazed at the greatness of God. I want people not to be amazed at at Christ Community Fellowship. Lord God, erase that name from the earth except for Christ. Amen? That they would go, man, Jesus. And they would look to him. He is our, is our, is our home. And that, yes, we gather together. Yes, we teach the word. We love that. But may the focus be on him. May the focus be on, on him to the glory of the Father. Amen? So let's bow in prayer. Father, we ask that this morning that you would empower Lord, you have empowered us, <laughs> that we would realize what, what, what we have in you, and that we would stop looking at ourselves as the ugly duckling, but as the, uh, as the, as the swan, so to speak, of who we truly are. And so this morning, for the, for the weakest uh, of saints in here who's just heartbroken over their lives and everything that's going on, Jesus' grace is sufficient for you. He died and bled to to forgive you of all of your sins. And now he's called you to his mission and his ministry. And so, Lord God, I pray that you'd speak uh, into our lives, Lord, that mission field you've put us in. And, and, And it might just be right where we are, our jobs, our homes, our family, raising kids. Help us to do it to your glory with the joy and the power you've given us. And Lord, I pray for those who are in affliction this morning and they're having to go before doctors and they're having to go places they don't want to go like Peter didn't. And, I'm, and I lift them up and I, and I ask that, Lord, that would be a divine appointment that as these beautiful saints are placed in front of, of people who are usually isolated, that you would use them as salt and light in the midst of them. Um, that in our weakness, you would be made strong, God. And so make us a church of, of weak people, humble people, but strong in the Lord. And so more of you and less of us today, Father, we're asking in the name of Jesus, amen.